Uh, I'm going to be continuing our sermon series through 2 Timothy this week, and at this point, you've heard a lot of different flavors of preaching, a lot of different flavors of preaching at Mercy House. It's been a lot of fun, personally, to get to hear uh, some of the men at Mercy House who have been trained up in, in order to preach and teach, and, but all of them are very different. Uh, it's kind of like the Gospels. So if you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see them being very uniquely written because of the people who wrote them. Um, and, and as I was reflecting on that, I was like, man, I, I think there's, there's some correlation between that and uh, some of the styles of preaching that we've been hearing over the last few weeks. Chris Gow, to me, is kind of like the Gospel of Luke, right? Luke is the longest of all of the Gospels. That's not really to say anything about him, but um, it's very exhaustive in nature. Uh, Gao is one of like, the most knowledgeable people I know, and so he's not going to leave any of the details out. Uh, Austin is kind of like the book of Matthew. Matthew has a very heavy emphasis on historical and cultural context. If you know Austin, he's like a nerd when it comes to this in the greatest possible way. So if you have any questions about like, what does this mean in the original Greek or original Hebrew? He'll be like, well, technically, right? It's, it's awesome. It's a blessing. I'm not making fun of him. That's just who he is in, in my brain. Uh, Patrick Grafton Cardwell is literally a philosopher at UMass, a PhD candidate. And, and John uses a lot of... Um, abstract and philosophical concepts uh, in that narrative. So I feel like PGC is kind of like the John. That leaves Mark, right? Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. It's really written uh, in very basic grammar. It's aimed toward people with very limited attention span. So I think that just, I default onto that one. So I'll, I'll, be, I'll be Mark for you. Last week, um, Austin walked us through 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19, um, and in that portion, Paul's really emphasizing the importance of, of having a correct understanding of who God is, um, and also the weight of how we communicate that to other people. That having a solid grasp on the theological concepts of Scripture um, and having right doctrine of beliefs is actually a really fruitful endeavor that can not only build ourselves up, but build the body of believers up as a whole. I think one way, uh, one thing that we can take away from that is that the idea of digging deeper into Scripture, diving deeper into the concepts of who God is, um, what He's done, why He's done it, I mean, that's really theology. Um, it, that process is not reserved for the intellectual elites or the seminarians or the, the bookworms. It's actually a very crucial process for all of us as believers as we're maturing in our faith to kind of shift beyond the, the coffee cup mug Bible verse that we might know into diving into the deep depths of the, the, just the richness of God's word, right? So moving along that spectrum, maybe you grew up in a church where you knew one verse and that's a great place to start, but the encouragement is to continue deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding God's word. So if you're in a discipleship group, um, you're doing this now. You're walking through how to dig into Scripture for yourself, working on understanding theological concepts as they're laid out in Scripture, gaining a correct understanding of God's Word. And as we do this, as we grow in this, again, we're not just building ourselves up in our faith and our, in our joy and our love of God and His Word, um, but we're, we're also able to build others up as well through the things that we are talking about, through the things that we're engaging with, um, as they're being seasoned by the Word and by the truth, as we're spending time in God's Word, it's going to naturally reflect in the other aspects of our lives. I think in contrast, when we're not maturing in the knowledge of Scripture and developing our theological understanding, um, we can actually have the opposite effect. 
We see this in the passage. Uh, we can actually do damage to other believers um, by not having our thoughts and our speech being seasoned uh, by the truth of the gospel. And when it's not being seasoned by the truth of the gospel, it's being seasoned by the broken and corrupt world that we're living in, which many oftentimes is in stark contrast to the truth that we see in Scripture. Paul likens this to being agents of disease, specifically gangrene, that spreads and wreaks havoc in the body of Christ. And if you were curious like me and you made the mistake of Google searching gangrene, I am sorry. Um, you can commiserate with me afterwards. Do not Google search, Google image search gangrene. It is the most disgusting thing I have ever Google image searched. Um, and I say that pretty seriously, but the, the, the point of that is that when Paul talks about us having incorrect understandings of Scripture and trying to teach others in that incorrectness, we are like gangrene, this disease that is polluting the body of Christ. It's pretty serious stuff. So having a right understanding of Scripture, <clears throat> having a right theology, uh, it's a weighty responsibility. And that's why we only preach exegetically through Scripture, um, not topically. So when we plan sermons, uh, when we go through a series, you'll notice that we go through books of the Bible. We don't go through topics inside the book of the Bible. So uh, we don't pick a topic like loving your neighbor and then find Scripture to support what our thoughts and our ideas are on that topic. What we do is we let Scripture inform our thoughts and our ideas, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, verse word by word. We hold God's word above all other authority um, in handling all matters of what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to conduct ourselves as believers. Um, this is the way that it's always been at Mercy House, and it's the way that it's always going to be at Mercy House. This idea of sola scriptura, the ultimate authority, is in Scripture. So this week, Paul shifts his focus slightly from the importance of thinking, uh, thinking and talking rightly to other ways that we can prepare ourselves to be used by God, both in the context of our church family, but also in the world as we go out in it. So let me pray for us. Let me take a sip of water. Um, the audio from the first sermon is still running through back here. Is there any way to, can we just mute the uh, monitors? I can hear myself talking. It's very weird. Mm -mm. still going. I guess I'll just wrestle through it. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Even when there are distractions and things that would try to um, take our focus off of you, thank you that um, you give us a supernatural focus, Lord. Um, and I pray that you would do that now, that you turn our hearts and our eyes and our attention onto you and what you would have to say to us. God, I pray that what I say would not be a stumbling block to anybody here, but that it would help people understand your word and make things a little bit more clear. God, would you communicate what you want to communicate? Lord, would you glorify yourself um, through this sermon? We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, verse 20. I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to be camped out here in these few verses this morning. <clears throat> so starting in verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Paul here, uh, what he's doing is he's using an illustration of different types of containers uh, and flatware in a house to communicate the varying degrees of usefulness of people 
to God in the church. Now, at first glance, I think this could stir some feathers um, as we kind of rank where people are at uh, in their usefulness to God. But I think if we dig into the scripture here, it's, it's a lot more reasonable and intuitive than it seems at first glance. So let's break down the illustration that Paul is using. Paul is pointing out here that there are different kinds of containers that people have uh, in their houses that are used for different things. So in the Moore household, we have uh, lots of things that we eat out of. I brought some of these. My wife didn't know I brought them, um, and she's like, what are you doing with all our stuff? So during Thanksgiving time, we, we, we busted these out. Um, Caitlin's grandmother passed away. She gave us a huge set of these. Uh, we use them a couple of times a year. But when we have people that we really love over and we really want to honor them, we use these. Um, they are very beautiful. There are blue flowers on them. There's a whole set of them. Some of them have like gold filigree. There are little teacups that hold like two ounces of tea in them. Um, it, says, it says fine china on the back, so I'm going to trust it and say that it's fine china. We don't use this every day. Our everyday plate is this one. It's from Room Essentials at Target. Stoneware, dishwasher, and microwave safe may get hot in the microwave made in China as well. So uh, this is our bread and butter. We use this every single day. They're hard to break. I've tried. Um, we use these a lot. All right. <clears throat> Another one that we use a lot is this guy right here. What do you think that's made out of? A nice plastic. Yep. Uh, there are knife marks all over it. There's still some crusted food in the corner right here. Uh, we use these for our children. Why do you think we use these for our children? Because we can do that and we can continue using it. When we have lots of people over, and it's not like we don't care about them, but um, when we just have lots of our like friends over and we're doing like nachos or dip or something, we use these bad boys right here. Yep, little paper doilies. You put the food on there and when you're done, you throw it in the trash, you never worry about it ever again, right? Paul's not just talking about flatware though. But even there, you can start seeing there is a difference in the, in, in the containers that we use in our house. It's not just food, though. People would have understood the word vessels to include containers for garbage and, and then even human waste. So when you continue looking at our house, we have a kitchen trash. It's right in the middle of the house. We use that for the majority of stuff. Um, we then also have a bathroom trash. Like, it's a little bit nastier, right? Some of the things that go into the bathroom trash. And then we have, tucked away in a corner, the diaper pail. And the diaper pail doesn't see the light of day, only on the days that we have to empty it and put the refuse into the garbage can. The idea here is that there are nicer, more presentable, honorable containers that are used for uh, more honorable situations, and then there are ones that are not. And so this is less about like the material that Paul is talking about. We, we, it's really difficult to understand the material usage here because for us, like Pottery Barn says that wood and, and clay are like in right now, right? Those are like the really awesome ones. So think less about that. Uh, but the idea is that we wouldn't use our diaper pail to serve mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving, right? There's a place and a usage and some are more honorable than other ones. But how does that relate to us? Why, does it make, why is Paul even talking about this illustration of different vessels and containers being used in a house? Let's read verse 20 again, but then go into 21. He says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. <clears throat> and what Paul is getting at here is that 
as followers of Jesus, who have been brought into the house of God by the blood of Christ, um, we play an active role in preparing ourselves to be useful to God for ministry. I know that's a mouthful. Let me say it one more time. As followers of Jesus, we have been brought into the house of God by the blood of Jesus to play an active role in, in preparing ourselves to be useful to God for ministry. I choose my words very carefully here. And the reason is because Paul is not laying down a method for salvation. He's not saying, if you cleanse yourself, then you will be able to be brought into the house. If you get your act together, um, then you will be able to come and be with God in his house. So this admonishment is, is for those who have already been brought into the house by the grace of Jesus through faith in him. So how do we know this? Well, there are a few clues. First, the illustration itself begins with inside a great house. So if Paul was talking about salvation, he would have been talking about how the vessels get into the house to begin with. But that's not what he's talking about here. Second, Paul's reference to a great house is not random. <clears throat> we can understand that the house Paul is referring to is the house of God, God's kingdom and his domain where believers are gathered into uh, together as a church. And this is consistent with the similar language that's used throughout Scripture. So we have a few sample verses, and this is just a small portion um, of those verses. But in John 14, 2, this is Jesus speaking. He's saying, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, says, you, yourself, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the, in the previous letter from Paul to Timothy, in chapter 3, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So for those of us who are in the house, those containers and, and vessels which have already been brought into the house of God, if he or she cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be vessels for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So two questions arise here. One, what does it mean to cleanse ourselves? And two, what does it mean for us to be useful to the master of the house? And as I already mentioned, as we dive into what it means to cleanse ourselves, that this cleansing of ourselves is not a cleansing of our sin that allows us to be pure and righteous enough to come into the house, to have a relationship with God. This self-cleansing is not a self-salvation. One of the clearest places that we see this is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. And this is going to be on the screen behind me. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cleansing of sin, the, the cleansing of unrighteousness is accomplished completely by the blood of Jesus through his death for us on the cross. And so salvation, as we understand it in Scripture, is the complete and utter total work of God himself. 
So how do we make sense of Paul's urge for us to be cleansing ourselves? I think it's helpful to see uh, Christ's work as being done on, on a spiritual realm, a spiritual realm that's not any less legitimate or real as the physical realm that we're physically inhabiting right now. But Jesus' de- uh, defeat of death and sin is something done on, on a cosmic level that's much deeper than what we can see and what we can touch with our eyes uh, and with our hands. Paul alludes to this in Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what we see here is that there is a much larger reality than what we can see and what we can touch. There's more to life than what we can see around in this room. Um, There's more to life than than our houses, uh, the places that we go to work, the buildings that we go to to buy, our groceries. Uh, There's more to you and me than our flesh and our bones. There's more than that. And Christ's cleansing of our sin and unrighteousness is done on this cosmic level that's much bigger. It, It includes the physical, but it's much bigger than our physical reality that we can see and touch right here. That's what Paul is getting at. And so the invitation after the cosmic and spiritual salvation that we get to experience is for us to then take an active role in matching our physical reality with what is now our spiritual reality. You guys following me there? We, we are spiritually and cosmically redeemed back to God and made clean and righteous, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, we now have the power to be free from sin and reflect with our actions and our lives what God has already done in our souls and our spirit. You guys see that connection? But why cleanse ourselves beyond Jesus' cleansing? I think this is a great question because it helps us understand why we ought to be striving to grow and mature um, as believers and as followers of Christ at all. So if salvation is this thing that is completely accomplished by Jesus, um, if it's something that's through the blood of Christ on this cosmic scale that is eternal and unchangeable, and, and in the act of that cleansing, we are also given and imputed this, this righteousness, this perfection of Jesus that allows us to be in the presence of God, why do we need to do anything after that? What, why further cleanse ourselves? If we're already in the house, isn't that enough? And in part, on one level, yes. Yes, it it is enough. It's better to be the toilet in the house of God than to be fine china in the house of Satan. You got that? So it's better to be a container, a diaper pail, used for refuse in God's house than it is to be any awesome thing in the house of Satan. But, If you had the power and the choice to not be a dishonorable container, but instead be an honorable vessel that can be used in mighty ways by God, wouldn't you? Right? That's the choice. That's what Paul is getting at. That's what he's inviting us into. And so as we start talking about that, I think it's really important to clear up that this is not a basis for a spiritual hierarchy inside of the church. No one is going to be better than anyone else. Your, your usefulness to God um, and, and your capacity for ministry has no bearing on your standing before God if you're already in the house. 
He, he does not love you any more or any less, whether you can serve in a hundred different capacities or absolutely none. So there's a saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All that come to Christ and put their faith in Christ are made perfectly clean and righteous to the same capacity and degree as everyone else around us in the house of God. So as we talk about usefulness to God, let, let this be the foundation of where we start the conversation. This is not a structure for advancement or promotion inside the church. Our identity is solely in Christ, not in what we do and what we can do. And don't take this lightly. This, this reality is, is incredibly countercultural to what we live in today. So we live in a, a society that's constantly providing feedback on our positional standing, whether it be through the, uh, our grades, our salary, how many follower, uh, followers you have on social media. We, we live in a world where there are endless metrics to tell us where we are position, positionally relative to those who are around us. And this isn't just us. This isn't just because of social media and what social media and smartphones have done to us. This is something that the apostles wrestled with as well. In Luke chapter 9, we see this argument arising from themselves. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So these are the apostles. And they're fighting over what the pecking order is between the twelve. They're like, I'm number one. No, I'm, number, I'm three. I think you're six. You're definitely ten. You're like way down here, bro. Peter's like, I'm probably number one. Like, Peter, what are you talking about? You're not one. Right? They're literally having this argument. And they go to Jesus. And they're like, all right, let's have, let's have Jesus settle this. Jesus, can you just tell us who is the greatest? So we go on in the scripture, and it says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The usefulness that Paul is talking about here has no bearing in our positional relationship with God or among other people horizontally. It doesn't, and, and it shouldn't, make anyone more valuable than anybody else inside the church. There's no group of elite Christians here at Mercy House. We're not going to give out an MVP award at the end of the semester. But the reality that Paul is pointing out, and that I, I think that we can intuitively see as we look around, is that there are some people in our church who have seemingly prepared themselves for ministry and served in some really awesome ways. And while we see those people, we can look around and maybe observe in ourselves that there are other people who simply haven't, whether to the same degree or really even at all. And so there's, there's no shame in this. I, I don't say this to shame anybody who might feel like they're not being used by God. There shouldn't be any hard feelings about this. There shouldn't be any resentment or jealousy as we see other people who are serving ridiculously and, and see ourselves as not. And look, this is fully understanding that there might be some of these emotions and feelings, but, but these are sinful responses that, that we need to work out based on the truths that we have just been hammering about, about our positional relationship with God and with other people. But I think that it's an easily observable reality. And we, we might call it, as we look out and see some of these people, as those who are a little bit more spiritually mature than us or other people. 
We might see it as someone who really has their spiritual disciplines in place. We might just say, like, oh, they just have it a little bit more together than we do. They, they have their stuff together. But I think the reality is that if we see people who are being used by God, they, uh, they have, in, in part, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, what they've been doing is they've, they've been preparing themselves by cleansing themselves and making themselves more useful to God for ministry. What does this look like? So one of the things that we just talked about were the five devotions. I think that the people that we see really um, using their lives and serving God in, in different capacities um, are people who are really devoting themselves to the five devotions. So the five devotions being the word, prayer, fellowship, mission, and worship. And so on, on one level, those people who are serving and being used, used by God in big ways um, are in their own personal lives being transformed into the likeness of Christ through pursuing these five devotions. They may also uh, just be sanctified and matured through the intentional, missional living of their lives. They're, they're learning about the five devotions, but then they're consciously making the decisions and talking about the implications for what that looks like in their lives. As they go to school, as they go to work, as they interact with family, there's an intentionality of having their lives look a certain way as they're being confronted with the truth and reality of Scripture. They're putting into practice what they're learning. I think the third thing that's happening, and again, all these things may not be happening because they're saying, how can I be more useful to God? Let's do these things. No, I, I think that they are useful to God because they're just doing these things. Uh, and Paul is pointing it out as a motivation that, hey, if you want to be in the house and be useful by God, these are things that you can pursue. But at the same time, this is what it looks like to grow and mature as a disciple of Christ. So this isn't like a new part of the equation that we don't know about. This is what we talk about as a church all the time. And part of that growing in our usefulness to God is actively praying and looking for opportunities to be used by God. There are some of us who are doing that on a daily basis, saying, God, how can you use me today? And then going out into our lives with an understanding and, and remembrance of that prayer and looking for ways that God is calling us to be used by him. And then there are some of us who, who don't do that. So that's part of the equation as well. well one of the symptoms that I think that, that you would see by people that you see God using them in mighty ways. When I was in middle school and high school, I, I played lacrosse. I loved lacrosse. And at the time, lacrosse wasn't very popular. Uh, but there was something to just being able to like whack other people with giant metal rods that appealed to my 12-year-old brain, um, and, and it just stuck through the years. I loved it. I remember I played at summer camps every year with this small group of friends. We just grew up playing lacrosse all the time. We played in the fall and winter indoor leagues every year. Anytime that we weren't playing in a game or uh, playing in a league, we would just be playing catch at the park down the road from my house. Um, we would just we would play catch. We would, we would throw the ball around. Um, and we, lo we just loved playing lacrosse, loved it. Um, by the time that we got to high school, our freshman team, when we got together and played, we were undefeated our freshman year, which is the, the height of my uh, sports career right there. My freshman team went 13-0, and so yeah, baby. The next year, when we were sophomores, a group of us got invited to go play on varsity, and that was a huge honor. We got to play over other people who had been playing uh, as upperclassmen for, for years on this team. And at that same time, there was this kid named Theo. 
The Theo um, would show up late to every practice, like literally late to every practice. He, he never really hustled or worked hard. Um, he would fake injuries all the time to get out of workouts. So this is a kid that would like spend extra time in the trainer's office, like getting both his ankles taped up, getting his knee taped up, getting his wrist taped up. By the time he made it out to practice, we'd be like three quarters of the way through practice. And it was intentional. It wasn't like he actually had these injuries. There was one time that he fell asleep on a bus on our, on our way to a, a game, and he didn't wake up until after the half, right? So he comes out of the bus, like half-dressed up, like sleep in his eyes, and he's like, what's going on? We're like, we just played half a game. Come on over to this side of the sideline. And Theo wasn't very useful to the coach, right? He didn't play very much. He, he never prepared himself for these games, And as I reflect back, it wasn't like my friends and I who grew up playing were super amazing athletes um, or players. None of us went on to play in college. Um, It wasn't something that that was really marked our identity. We weren't these star athletes. But I think what the coach did recognize is that we made the effort and, and we showed up consistently. We came early to practice. We stayed late, not to like get a pat on the back, but because we just loved playing lacrosse. We hustled. We tried, we took time to learn the plays and helped other players who didn't understand them because we we wanted to to play and do well when it came to game day. And when it was time to play in the game, uh, we had prepared ourselves and we were ready to go. And Theo was asleep on the bus. But we all wore the same jersey. We were all on the same team. At, At the end of the year, everyone, including Theo, went to the banquet um, Theo got a varsity pin for his jacket. He got a trophy just like the rest of us. He was, he was on the team, but he wasn't a part of the team. You get that distinction? He was on the team, just like anybody else. If they ask who's on your team, he was listed on that roster, but he wasn't a part of the team. I think that's Paul's invitation here, that through Christ, uh, we've been invited onto the team. We've been given jerseys of righteousness that allow us to represent a perfect and pure God. And now it's on us to prepare ourselves to play, knowing that the victory has already been won. The trophy is waiting for us at that banquet at the end of the road. Whether we're useful to the captain coach Jesus or not. But if we can, if we're able, why not play? Why not get into the game? My favorite question is always going to be, um, what does this look like practically? So here we go. What does this look like practically for us to prepare ourselves, to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable? In verse 22, Paul goes on to say, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Preparing ourselves to be useful to God involves fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And Chris Gow did a fantastic job um, in the unpacking of this idea earlier in the chapter um, of us being soldiers at war and making sure that we're not entangled in civilian pursuits. And I think this exhortation here pairs really well with that one. And here we're talking about fleeing youthful passions. Other translations would use youthful lusts. And this is understood to be connected with, with some fleshy motivations um, and drives of, of, of young adolescence or young adulthood. 
And some of those drives and those passions of, uh, of young adulthood and, and adolescence, um, I think we can understand, still might very well be present in, uh, in us as adults today. And in our desire to be useful to God for ministry, these are things that, that Paul is calling us to flee from, from sexual temptation, from illicit pleasures of the flesh, um, the, this longing for fame and glory. I mean, if you were to encapsulate the, the things that drove you when you were an adolescent, um, those are things that Paul is saying. Now, as an adult, those are things that we flee from. So when people ask why we flee from these things as believers, our answer should never be to be a good Christian. It's a really bad answer. Part of the reason why we flee from these things is right here in these verses, so that we can position ourselves for greater use by the master of the house, both in the lives of our fellow believers and out in the world. And Paul here, when we look at his, his urging, he, he, he doesn't say grit through temptation. He's not saying stand up and, and, and face temptation. He's not saying endure temptation. He's saying flee temptation, run as fast as you possibly can. I think the reality or, or the lie is that, well, temptation is like just this small whisper of a snake, right? And, and we can squash it and put our head on it, our, our, our foot on its head at any time. But if it has the whisper of the snake, the reality is that it has the power of a lion to destroy us. So what does fleeing temptation have to do with our usefulness to God? If we can be honest, the believers in the room, we know what it feels like to give in to temptation and to choose sin. We know that feeling. We've been at that place where there is just the sense and feeling of uselessness and shame that completely darkens and shrouds our brains and our minds. And while part of that is Satan attacking us while we're down with lies, that sin still has power over us, that the sin that we're committing is, is actually who we are, um, there is that lie that comes in from Satan. But some of that feeling of that uselessness is, is real. There's a real uh, sense to that. It doesn't mean that, that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that you're outside of God's grace. But there are implications to choosing to submit ourselves to our fleshy desires, to sin, and to Satan. There are practical implications to that. When we give into these youthful passions, what we're doing is we're spitting in God's face and defecting our allegiance to the other side. Now, can we repent? Absolutely. There's grace. This is a gospel of grace. Is God slow to anger, having already paid for the sin that we choose to commit after we've given our lives to Jesus? Absolutely, that's mercy. God is a merciful God. So while choosing sin, giving in to temptation doesn't change our placement in the house, we're not being kicked out of the house, we're not being put into the doghouse in the backyard, we're not kicked out of the family, uh, it does affect how we're able to relate with God and our ability to be sensitive to Him and the things that He's calling us to do. Sin separates. We often think that our sinfulness makes God mad at us. And, th and that might be why we can't be used by God. When in reality, sin affects us by polluting our minds and, and distorting our perception of reality. It, it affects our ability to engage with God, not the other way around. God can engage with us fully whether we're sinful or we're not. 
but it affects the way that we are able to fellowship with our God. It makes us not want to draw near to him. It takes our attention and our focus away from him. It moves us away from him. God is constant. It's we in who our sins sin distance ourselves from God and turn the other way. That's why giving into temptation makes us less useful to God. Not because God is putting us in time out, but because we've taken it our, uh, upon ourselves to run out of the house that we have brought, been brought into, to pursue our own passions and dismissing God and his passions and pursuits. Whether temptation, that temptation for you is sexual in nature or, or another youthful passion, passions for fame and affection, for prestige, for money, for fleeting, illicit pleasures, these passions take our focus out of the house of God, off of the things of God. So if you want to be useful to God, to be used by God, flee from these things that would distract us and make us mentally absent from the house of God. The important thing here is that it, it's not enough to just flee from something. We must pursue something. When you're trying to develop a discipline or grow in a specific area, um, eliminating your distractions is going to be half the battle. But it's not just about removing things that would rob you of your mental presence. Um, the other part of it is a focus on what you're trying to drive toward. Letting go of what is tearing you down is a part of it, but also grabbing onto what would actually build you up. And Paul says in verse 22, he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. As we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, we are pursuing and putting on the opposite of what is dishonorable. So the four that Paul mentioned here are righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So real quickly, we'll run through them. The pursuit of righteousness here is the right living that is enabled by the Holy Spirit and that ought to be a reflection of that cosmic cleansing that we had talked about. The pursuit of faith here is the active choosing to live our physical lives in light of the spiritual transformation that has happened in our hearts and in our souls. The pursuit of love here is embodying the self-sacrificial love that Christ demonstrated to us on the cross, to each of us, to, to those who are around us both in the church body and also outside the church. And the pursuit of peace here is the reflecting of the peace that we have with God in the, in the personal relationships that we have. If at Mercy House we became a body of believers who are passionately pursuing these qualities of Christ. Can you imagine the usefulness of our church, both as individuals, but then also as a whole? Imagine the ways that we could individually and collectively be bringing healing and restoration and redemption to the people of this valley and beyond as we pursue these aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This isn't something that we do privately, right? This is the, the, the application of this sermon is not go home and figure out how to do this on your own. It's not something we do in an isolated vacuum. That last part of what Paul says is, is really key. At the end of verse 22, so he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's done alongside other believers, along other sides of this church family. 
And this is why Mercy House pushed discipleship groups so hard, right? It's why we plan events like Persist. It's why we hold men's and women's retreats every single year. It's why we plan marriage retreats for, for married couples. It's why there's a prayer team. That's why we plead with you every single week to please give us your contact information, right? So we can invite you into community. So we can tell you about the ways that you can live out this pursuit of righteousness, faith, love, and peace alongside other people who are also doing it as well. So as we look at this text, we, we, we have a choice this morning. <clears throat> this text is one of those that invites us into something much larger than ourselves. For those of us who have put our hope and our faith in Christ, who have been able to confess with our mouths um, that He is our God and that He has died the death that we deserve on the cross and, and rose from the dead and defeated sin and death, those of us who believe and put their faith in this cosmic reality, we're invited to respond by living our lives that reflect that reality. We're invited to cleanse ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, thereby preparing ourselves to be useful to the master of the house. If you're at a place where you're seeing other people serve around you, um, others who have cleansed themselves and have made themselves ready for, for their own ministries, and you feel a little bit like you're watching from the sideline, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be there forever. And I know, I know a lot of you, um, I, I know that you can, you can talk about what your life circumstances are or, or things that are going on that would make you really busy, whether that's having kids or being a, a PhD student. Like, there are lots of reasons, right, uh, that would prevent us from kind of getting into the game, so to speak, and being okay watching from the sideline. But my encouragement to you this morning is that um, the ministry that God has prepared for you might not look the way that you think your ministry is going to look. Right? It might not be what Susie and what John have for their personal ministries, the ways that they serve, because their ministry is so specific to the way that God has gifted them and their circumstance in life. This is going back to one of the first sermons that Chris Gow preached, where our discernment um, and our fulfillment of, of our ministry is not one that should be um, compared to the ministry of others. Timothy has his own ministry. He's not trying to fulfill the ministry of Paul. Paul has his own ministry. You have your own ministry that God has prepared for you, and he intimately knows who you are. He made you and, and, and fitted you with specific gifts um, and, and specific skills and specific experiences in order to fulfill your ministry. So God already has this planned out for you. So before, I, I think that's the encouragement, that is, is to not disqualify yourself uh, before you even step into the ring. If, if we can cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, um, and, then, and then to pray that God would be using us. God is faithful to reveal this to us. So my challenge is, is to not make that decision for him and disqualify yourself, to submit yourself to the master of the house to be used how God would see fit. And he knows what is best. He knows your capacities. He knows where you're at in life, your life circumstance, what your schedule is like. And he's prepared a ministry specifically for each and every one of you. For those of us who have not put our hope and our faith in Jesus yet, that, that's the place to start. You've got to be brought into the house first 
in order to be used by the master of the house. And so I would encourage you to think about these things, and when you're ready, confess your faith in Jesus in prayer to him. It's not, you don't have to stand up here. You don't have to read the membership covenant. You don't have to do a whole bunch of checklist, checkbox things. You can have a private prayer with God and say, Jesus, I put my hope and my faith in you. I don't know much more beyond that, but that's where I'm going to start. That's a perfect place to start your relationship with Jesus. And if that's something that you've done this morning, there's going to be people back there with little name cards that say Mercy House on them. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to celebrate with you, pray with you, and then maybe direct you into the next few steps for what it would look like for you to follow Jesus. Talk to us. I mean, it's super exciting for us to be able to have that conversation with you. So that would make our day. If you're in that place, please come find us. So every week we do communion. And communion is this time where we can remember what Jesus has done on the cross and, and the cleansing power of that work. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we come down the center aisle with open hands, one by one, to receive this gift from God, we need to remember that there is nothing that we can do to prepare ourselves to deserve it more. There's nothing that we can do to prepare ourselves to, to make us more worthy to receive it. Remember that the, 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 the ground is level at the foot of the cross, so it's an experience of complete grace as we open up our hands, just like every person in line in front of you and every person in line behind you. As we talk about being useful to God, don't let that connect to taking communion, right? Those of us who take communion, we're in the house of God. Then the next step is, okay, how can I pitch in? What does it look like for me to use by the master? But those are two separate conversations. That first conversation is a thankfulness to God for purifying us, fully cleansing us from sin to be able to be in his presence and in his house at all. We often take uh, communion in a very somber matter, manner, um, and it is a very serious affair with deep and profound implications, but at the same time, um, it, it's representing a joyful feast and a celebration. This is life. As you take it and as you eat it, as you drink it, it is a, it is a feast that has united you with Christ. And that's something to celebrate about, to be joyful and happy about. Of course, understanding the sacrifice that was made so you can partake in this meal, but walking away with joy and excitedness, knowing that you have new life in Christ. That's why we do it every single, every single week. So the band's going to come up here. We make two lines down the center aisle. We swing out around the outside, um, and you take it at your own time. Um, and there will be people in the back uh, that would love to pray for you, love to pray with you, would love prayer themselves. So we encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, and we'll also have a couple more songs to sing to worship our God. Let me pray, and we'll go do that. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the work that you've done on a cosmic level that is so much bigger than what we can see right in front of us. We thank you that we can rest assured in the cosmic reality, God. We pray that as you transform our, our hearts, that you would also transform our lives, God. We thank you for paying the cost to bring us onto your team, God, onto your side. 
We thank you that the victory is already yours. We thank you for the crown, the trophy, and the banquet that awaits us, God. And pray that um, as we, yeah, between here and, and that moment where we get to experience eternity with you, God, that you would show us how to be useful to you, that you would use us in mighty ways to reach those around us, um, to share this great news of the gospel with God, to, to experience fellowship alongside. Um, so Lord, would you show us what our ministries are, uh, the work that you prepared for us to do ahead of time, and, and would you allow us to step into that? God, we, we can't do these things without you, and so we pray that you would empower us at, at each of these steps. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.